feels like there are a lot of wonderfully familiar faces here. Many people that I've grown up with and uh, walked with for a very long time. I feel a bit fuzzy. Am I a bit fuzzy? Does it just feel fuzzy to me? Okay, I can cope with it feeling fuzzy to me. Okay, I'm just so grateful for that worship that we've just had. You know, we ended up in a place where I can fall down on my knees and uh, looking at this topic of the God of justice, I have done that more than once. I, uh, I chose this topic and uh, there have been many times over the last... Sorry, why am I banging? Is it me? It's always me with this thing. Over the last few weeks where I've been studying, where I've wished I hadn't chosen the subject, but here goes. I'm not going to answer all your questions. Um, I'm just trying to give you a few thoughts about what it means for God to be the God of justice. It's my starter if you, for 10, if you like. It's my invitation to you to look further. I think sometimes we're frightened of this talk about the God of justice. We see punishment. We see a courtroom scene. And through this talk, I'm going to be looking at that head on. Um, but hopefully within that, I'm going to also show that... God is just, but he's also gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. My text is not that. My text is yet. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. What a happy text. <laughs> so God may be compassionate and gracious. He may be patient and full of love and faithfulness, but he's also the judge. He's a God of justice. In fact, he's the God who defines what justice is. This talk of punishment transports us from the mountainside into the courtroom where the judge not only pronounces punishment but sets the laws and declares the verdict, guilty or not guilty. The concept of God as judge is uncomfortable for all of us. It makes us consider sin right and wrong. It makes us think about the consequences of sin punishment both now and in eternity and it challenges us to face the question that so many before us have faced why do bad people seem to do so well and why do good people suffer and the question I want to look at today is do we really believe that God is just as I said I can only scratch the surface of this topic but let's think about what God might be saying to us through what I say. Right, we're going to look at the context first. I'm a good Bible student, and we always look at context of verses, don't we? 
And the context of this, as you know full well by now, is that the Israelites who've got tired of waiting for Moses coming down from the mountain say, oh, Aaron, can you make a God that we can follow? And Aaron, all for a quiet life, obliges, and he produces the golden calf out of the, the um, jewelry that they have. And then he, to top it all, announces a great big festival to the Lord, which becomes a bit of a wild party. And God sees that. He sees from the mountaintop what's going on. Already the covenant that he has just signed with his people Israel has been smashed to pieces. They've broken the first and second commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol. And he's angry with his stiff-necked people. I love that phrase. Stiff-necked people. They're slow to change. They've grown up in Egypt with lots of gods. And here they are. They're supposed to pay allegiance to one God who, quite frankly, is out of the way at the moment and they can't see him. He's so angry that Moses feels the need to sort of talk him down. You know how you calm someone down a bit and he says turn from your fierce anger relent and don't bring disaster on your people so God amazingly relents Moses then goes down the mountain with the tablets of stone and he sees for himself what the Israelites have done and guess what he gets apoplectically angry (laughs) So much so that he stirs up the Levites to go throughout the camp on a killing spree. And 3,000 people are massacred that day. But Moses sleeps on it. And he has a change of heart. And there's a crucial little paragraph in there, in chapter 32, where Moses says, Can I make atonement for the people's sin? I know it's bad. But Lord... I ask you for their forgiveness. And God says, no, it's impossible for one man to atone for another. Each is responsible for his own sin. There is a price to pay. So in this story, we see very early on in God and the Israelites' relationship that God's justice system is established and outworking. There's law, there's crime, there's verdict, there's punishment. But God doesn't stop there, does he? Just after he said this bit about it's impossible for one man to atone for another, he tells Moses, very surprisingly, so now go, lead the people to the place I've spoken of. That's the promised land. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't slaughter the others. He's faithful to his promises, even though his people aren't. God is both just and righteous on the one hand, and faithful, loving, and compassionate on the other. He cannot be one without the other. Both are indispensable parts of his character like two sides of the same coin. Let me give you a little example from my own life to try and make something of this make some sense. As parents, we love our children, don't we? But sometimes we don't particularly like them, especially during the terrible twos. 
one of our sons, I won't name him, when he hit that interesting stage of his life, and we used to meet together as mums with our kids a lot, he decided that biting other children was okay. I did not. Now, we made him pay some consequences for that. We had to take him out for a time. We had to withdraw him. He had to suffer a little for what he was doing because it was the only way to convince him it wasn't normal. So for three whole horrible weeks, we removed ourselves from our friend's company and I spent a long time on a re-education program of what was right and what was wrong. Now, I'm glad to say he learned his lesson, and he hasn't done that since. He's done lots of other things, but he hasn't done that one. Now, I know this little crisis in the terrible twos isn't the same as what I've just said with the Israelites. But you think of them. They were in the early days of their relationship with God, and they had a lot to learn. So sometimes they needed some consequences, some punishment for what they had done. There is accountability for wrongdoing in God's economy. But God, like me, didn't dream of giving up on them. He loved them. And instead, he, into that very situation, he pours this wonderful self-revelation that you've all been in in the last couple of months about his grace and his love and his compassion and his faithfulness. He doesn't want them to think of him as a hard man who's going to chop them down every time they do anything. He wants them to know all his love and compassion and kindness to them. He wants them to be in relationship to him. So that's the context. And it's very important we understand that because we're talking about punishment here. But we need to remember what God is speaking into. So let's look at the verse. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. This is the God of justice. Now, I get part one. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. I get that. Punishment, crime, fine. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Does that give anyone else a problem? It gives me a problem. And I've spent a long time over the last few weeks thinking about this problem, and I've come up with four points that many other people like me have come up with in the past. Amazing what you can read in books. Anyway, the first point, Exodus 20, verse 5. Now, this is the first mention of these, these words. It's the first mention of the Ten Commandments when God is setting things up in the first place. And it says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That puts a slightly different picture on it, doesn't it? This isn't the innocent great-grandchild getting punished for something that their great-grandfather, who they hardly knew. It's not that. This is the person who follows in their father's footsteps, who's, who picks up their father's anger and resentment and bitterness and acts out of it. These are the people that God is talking about, the third and fourth generation. Maybe our verse here is just shorthand because they've just heard it beforehand. That's the first point. 
The second point, there are lots and lots of places in the Bible where this sentiment is disagreed with. For example, Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for their own sin. Directly contradicts what we've just heard. Or Ezekiel 18, verse 20. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to him. And the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. Both these verses and others make it clear that each one of us is responsible for our own sin. That's just what God said to Moses in our context, chapter 32. Thirdly, families in that culture were represented by fathers. They were the heads of families. Therefore, what the father did and the consequences of those actions would be felt by the whole family around at the time. Now, did any of you see the recent drama Sherwood? Yeah, brilliant drama, I thought. And it was about a town decades after the miners' strike. And it was about what happened in the miners' strike and how it affected the town today. Men who had crossed the picket lines were still being called scabs by those who were on strike. Two of the wives on opposing sides hadn't spoken to each other in 40 years, despite the fact they were sisters. A young man and a young woman from different households, they had to keep their relationship, their love relationship secret because their families were so filled with hate. Sounds a bit like Romeo and Juliet, doesn't it? Sherwood lived in the shadow of what the fathers had done, and they paid a very high price for it. Brilliant example. But finally, and most importantly, remind yourself of verse 6. It says, he maintains love to thousands or a thousand generations and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. There may well be limited punishment There may well be consequences we face, but there is unlimited grace and forgiveness. So maybe this verse isn't quite such a problem after all. Maybe I can say God is just. But there's a problem here. I've just tried to defend God and his justice. How dare I? How very dare I? I remember someone used to say that. I'm trying to satisfy us with all our questions and uncertainty that God is just, that he's righteous, that he's good. And I'm not the only one. There are whole shelves of theology books that do exactly the same. Fortunately, God thought of that, and the book of Job is God's response. Job, if you haven't read it, in God's words, is a blameless and upright man. He's very proud of Job. But Satan claims that's down to having a blessed life. And that if he were to suffer, if he were to lose things, he would give up and curse God to his face. Then God gives Satan permission, I don't know why he did this, but he did, to prove his point, to make Job suffer. And Job rapidly loses everything he holds dear. Now, understandably, at that point, having lost wife and family and possessions, he was desperate. He had a crisis of faith. 
Fortunately, he had some friends around. He had three friends who don't hesitate to comment on what is happening and why. And a further counsellor, Elihu, a young man who jumps in when they've run out of things to say. And this goes on for about 36 chapters. In doing so, those commentaries cover many of the arguments that you all might make about the justice of God. It's a wonderful book. It's actually great if you can get through it. If you can't, look up the Bible project, look up the God of justice, and they'll do wonderful justice to this bit. Anyway, that's another thing. In chapter 38, the Lord, Yahweh, after everyone else has finished talking, steps in. And now he asks the questions. Each one of them pointing to his uh, divine nature as the almighty, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the ever-present God. This takes us right back to Genesis and the creation story. God, the master craftsman at work, speaking everything into being in perfect harmony, like a well-tuned instrument that proclaims his glory. That's our God. Who better to define what is good and right, what the world requires to keep, God, to keep on going and to flourish in relationship to him? And Job, when he hears this, he utters these words, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He got revelation. He didn't get answers. He got revelation. And that's true for us too. We have to know God for ourselves as he reveals himself to us. The one who created us knows the end from the beginning. He understands our hearts and our motivations. He is the one to judge. Who are we? Who are we to question his justice? In 2004, my dad died. He was uh, my hero. He was a very, very good and honorable man. And I loved him. Yeah, I loved him dearly. He wasn't a Christian. He'd been through far too much in his life. He'd seen too much evil. He'd been let down by the church at a point of real need. And he couldn't believe in a God of love. And nothing I could say could change his mind. And I remember pleading with God many, many times for his salvation, that I would know that he was saved. I knew that if I didn't, I would struggle. I would have a crisis of faith. And that's exactly what happened. Why? But the following year, I went to Bible college in Oxford. Something I'd always wanted to do. And God gave me the opportunity at just the right time. Amazing how God's timing works so well. On the first day of my course, God spoke to me very clearly about meeting with him and letting go of my dad. It didn't happen instantly. It happened, as Robin was saying, out of a time of real study and prayer. But I found God again, and I was able to release my dad 
into his safe hands, knowing that he would judge right. And since that time, I can say that I know that I know that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He's forgiving and he's just, and I can trust him no matter what. We're so fundamental to my faith. Do you have big questions for God that are some stumbling blocks to your faith? Questions about pain and suffering, about where he is, why he doesn't intervene, promises that he hasn't fulfilled. Maybe you don't even dare articulate them because you're faith, fear, fearful that you might lose your faith if you do so. Or maybe they stop you even coming to faith because you couldn't worship a God like that. Maybe today, God is inviting you to go with him on a journey of discovery. He's bigger than your questions. He may not give you answers that you require, but I believe that as you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That's a promise that he made. The second half of Job's life was far more blessed than the first. My faith after my crisis of faith is stronger than it was before. And I'm praying that today, many of you will trust God with your questions and find him in your places of doubt. Or do you look at this verse about punishment and you have no doubt about whether God is right to punish you because you are so filled with guilt and fear? Maybe those words loom so large to you, the words about punishment, that you forget the rest of God's self-revelation, his grace and compassion. If that's you, there's only one place you need to look, at the cross, where God's uncompromising justice, that plumb line which will not move, meets his unquenchable love. A holy and righteous God could not ignore sin, could not ignore man's injustice to man, could not ignore wickedness or rebellion, however much he loves his people. There has to be a price paid for sin. But picture the courtroom again. God on his justice seat, us in the dock. It says in Romans 3, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whatever your views on sin are, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And God the just must therefore declare us guilty and then pass sentence. But as he does so, Another enters the courtroom, his one and only son, who has chosen to take our place so that the punishment for our sin falls on him. God says to Moses that no man can atone for another's sin. We read that in chapter 32. But Jesus can, because he's fully God and fully man, a man without sin who bears the sin of us all, all the way to the cross. That's the heart of the gospel. God's justice, God's unquenchable love. 
if we will receive him into that dock with us, if we will accept both our guilt and his gift of grace to us, then we walk free from the courtroom. No charge against us. God's grace and justice working hand in hand. My favorite verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that all who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So for those of you who listen to this talk today and feel full of guilt and fear, God wants to say to you, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. God's justice is never just about punishment. It's about restoration too. In the same way he didn't give up on his people when they worshipped that golden calf, he doesn't give up on you. His desire for you is to lead you into life with him. Some of us might hear tonight echo the words of the prophet Habakkuk. How long, O Lord? Our hearts are heavy and we see injustice all around in society, in government, in the nations. We see war and violence and inequality. Every time we turn on the news, every paper we read, there is injustice of some kind written large. How long, oh Lord? Do you know, I went to see the film Elvis the other day. I do recommend it. It was great. But instead of singing those wonderful songs when I came out, I came out spitting teeth. I was furious. Has anyone seen it? I was furious because it was all about one man's exploitation of another. It was so unjust, it made me mad. This is not God's original intention that he laid out in the creation story, that one man would exploit another. He wanted us to live in harmony with each other and with God. And 2,000 years on from the death and resurrection of Christ, sin still abounds. There's unrighteousness all around, and I don't know about you, but the dark seems to be getting darker. How long, O oh Lord? We may be experiencing Christ's restoration and forgiveness, but so many aren't. Last Sunday, I was quite worked up about this in church during the worship, and I was crying out for him to come and intervene, to bring light into the darkness. And he very clearly answered me back, simply with these words. You're my hands and feet. You're my voice. What are you doing about it? Go, and I'll be with you. The God of justice does hear our cry, but we are his body now on earth. We are salt and light. We are the change makers. We are the hope bringers. He wants more than our words. He wants more even than our tears. He wants our lives to make a difference where we are. And he's not talking about us sitting in judgment on people saying, well, God wouldn't like that. No, that job is his. The way of justice for us 
is to rescue others from the pit as we have been rescued. To restore broken lives, to reconcile broken relationships. To speak out in the face of wrong. To live our lives in a way that will help others live life. To share what we have with those in need. As Micah the prophet says, and we heard earlier, to act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. To us, is the God of justice saying, How long, church? My spirit is on you. I have anointed you to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim this is the year of my favor. Of course, I'm paraphrasing Luke 4 there. But in the face of this ever darker world, maybe we need reminding that we're not only called, we are also empowered to be his hands and his feet and his voice so that we can play our part in building his kingdom of justice and righteousness in our small corner of the world. And this leads me to my last point, you'll be glad to know. The story doesn't end here. There's a final group I haven't mentioned. Those who are experiencing this injustice, this pain for themselves. Those who cry out of their pain and suffering, the persecuted, the oppressed, the exploited, the poor. And God says to them, there will come a day when Jesus will come again and make all things right. He sees their suffering. He hears their cry. And he is at work, not just now through the church, but he is at work to make all things right for them in time to come. Limited punishment, unlimited grace and favor and a heart for those who suffer. In the verses from Luke that I paraphrased just now, Jesus is speaking about the sovereign Lord being on him to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is God's invitation It's God's slowness to bring judgment. It's God's patience, even in the face of our sin. It's God's invitation to us to repent. But one day, God will say, and this is awesome, enough is enough. Because God is a God of justice, there will be a just reckoning in the end. And that's where the book of Revelation comes in. Firstly, that means that all of us, every man, woman, and child who's ever lived, will get our just deserts. This is an awesome day. God will be sitting on his judgment seat. 
Each one of us will be standing before him. And he will have two books in his hands. The first carries a record of every single thing you and I have done. The second is the book of life. The good news is that everyone who has received God's gracious gift of forgiveness through Christ will find their name written in that second book, the book of life. And they will walk free out of the courtroom into life in eternity with God. The bad is that all those who have refused him must pay the penalty for their own sin. They don't walk away from the courtroom free. They walk down to the cells. God's dividing line, God's justice, is not between what we have or haven't done. Have we been better or worse than the other? It's between who we have or haven't received. Have we received the love and forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ? It's an awesome thing to say. I didn't want to include it in my talk. It's so uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to the church. What on earth would the world make of it? But it is there in the Bible, in black and white. It fills me with awe. It brings home to me that God is God, and I, you, are not. Now, I did jury service last year, and I ended up as four person. I don't know how I ended up doing that, but I did. Um, but it meant that I had to declare the verdict before the court. I was shaking then. It was a deeply moving experience, and I still wonder, as I look back, whether we were right or wrong. We made the very best stab at judgment. We had one of those situations where it was five, seven in the jury room, and we had to talk each other around. It was quite a process. But we couldn't see into the defendant's heart. We could see his appearance, but we couldn't see into his heart. And we didn't know truth from lies in the witness statements. They were so contradictory. That day brought home to me the relief, the actual relief, that in the end it is God who judges, not I. For he is able to judge all things right. And secondly, in Revelation, and more comfortingly, you'll be glad to know, God's last word is not punishment. It's hope. God doesn't just judge right. He restores right. All that darkness, all that injustice and hatred and pain will one day be no more. I want to finish this talk on justice with this passage which I have grown to hold on to more and more as I've grown older, as I've grown older as a Christian, as I look forward to that time when one day God will come again. Revelation 21. Look, God's dwelling place is now among men and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death 
No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. We were here a couple of weeks ago when Mark was here. He reminded us recently, God makes all things new. He's the God of restorative justice. And he can't fail to be faithful to his promises. He will make all things new. So we end up on our knees before him. But we have an invitation to come to the living, awesome God. And whatever state we're in, whether we're questioning our consciences, our guilt, whether we're questioning whether we could believe in a God like that, whether we're questioning the Bible, whether we're questioning our circumstances, whether we're questioning why he isn't doing anything, whatever state we're in, we come to that God who's a God of justice and a God of faithfulness and compassion, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, full of love, forgiving thousands for generation after generation after generation. Let's not let a stumbling block get away enough, get in the way of our faith. But let's use our stumbling blocks, our questions, our struggles to come to him. Amen.